be still in the presence of the Lord for his power is moving in this place. I wonder if we really grip those words and understand what that really means. And I think we sung something like this that we're to fear him because he ministers his grace to us. How does he do that? Well, he does in many ways, but the main way that he ministers grace to us and he moves with power in our lives is through the word. As you read the word personally, and here this morning as we read it publicly, that's a special sense when the power of the Lord moves. So with that, let us uh, just look at the scriptures this morning. We're going to continue in our, in our series in Second Corinthians and chapter 11. Second Corinthians chapter 11 and keeping in mind at all times that last hymn is a prayer that he might move with power in our own lives. Second Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to read the first six verses. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. Okay, we'll stop right there. We need to understand that in these next two chapters, they're very difficult chapters, as I'm finding out, because one of the reasons why they're difficult is we don't know whether Paul's speaking or how he's speaking here. You know, he seems to say things that he's gone against. Even for this chapter, he boasts, and yet he's condemned boasting. So what Paul is doing here, just to sort of give you a little bit of background so that you can read this text with me uh, with a little more understanding, he is using a lot of irony and sarcasm. Now that might shock you, but that's what he does. He uses irony and sarcasm. Sarcasm, not in a sinful way, of course, because this was sarcasm that has been born by the Spirit of God. And so if we can just keep that in our minds, we'll read the rest of the, of the verses. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as a serpent deceives Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotions to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you have received a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully, or you bear this easily. Verse 5, For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent or super-apostles, but even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. May God bless his word uh, to us this morning. One of the most difficult things in life for anyone to deal with is responding rightly to what I call a lack of love and loyalty from someone who is dear to you. 
And I think we'll all know about that kind of circumstance in one way or another and at different levels. You see, when we speak of love and loyalty, we are immediately think of the family unit because love and loyalty is the glue that holds a family together, right? And we know that if love and loyalty is not a priority function by the family members, whether it's in very prestigious families or whether it's in what we might term insignificant families, if that's not a priority function, love and loyalty, that family will eventually disintegrate. That's a given. Because in such a family there is no joy, there's no peace, there's no trust, there's no abiding love. All of that stable, secure, good and necessary family substance is wrecked in one way or another. And the family suffers ruin where love and loyalty are snubbed on the family stage. So what do you do as a parent or one who is responsible for a family? What do you do as a parent who longs, duly longs, for a family member or for family members who have weakened and strayed in their love and loyalty toward that family? What do you do? After all, you are most likely primarily instrumental and responsible as maybe a father or a mother in bringing this whole family that you are thinking of right now into the world. You have given your all to this family. You have gladly put your whole life on hold, as it were, in order to nurture and to love and to give your family unit the heritage it deserves. That's what you do, right? But one day, deception creeps in. Deception creeps into your little family unit and choices are made that completely go against the upbringing and nurture that you have poured into them. This happens all the time in the world of families, right? It does. You become frustrated. You have pleaded with them. You have prayed for them. You have rebuked them perhaps for their foolishness and for following after prideful fancies. You've done all that. And even this kind of stuff happens in Christian families and it plagues many of us. But it also happens in church families. And here in our text that we have read this morning, the church family of Corinth still has some divided, disloyal family members attached to it. And Paul, the spiritual father figure, has to deal with this minority group that causing him and others so much grief and concern. As you know, most of the family members, the church family members of Corinth, had had returned, they'd repented, they'd returned to their love for Christ and the gospel that saved them. And they'd returned to their love for the Apostle Paul who had brought that message to them. But some of them were still on the outer. So how does Paul deal with these recalcitrant few? Well, this is what he does. He resorts to do something that he does not want to do. 
He resorts to do something that he does not want to do. As a last resort to warn and win back this disloyal faction, he does what is completely distasteful to him and something that is abhorrent to him. This is what he does. He commends himself. He boasts. That's the word he uses. He enters in this foolishness is another word he uses for how he begins to dialogue with this church in these next two chapters. He enters into a dialogue and a way of speaking that these foolish people had been sucked into by the false prophets because this is what the false teachers had done. They pumped themselves up and elevated themselves so that they would be deceived and listen to them. And so Paul stoops to this form of dialogue. And so with irony, as repugnant as this was, as boasting was, Paul uses this in defense of himself and his apostleship, not for his own sake, but for the sake of the gospel, the good news of the gospel and for the glory of God. He understood, you see, he understood that if he did not stoop to use this last resort, this foolish measure, his spiritual children, his spiritual family would continue to cut him off and cut him off as being a divine source of true knowledge and they would drift further from it. He knew that that's what that would happen. And so this foolishness, as Paul calls it in verse 1, he asked, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. This goes all the way through to chapter 12, this type of dialogue that he's using. Irony and sarcasm. And here in verses 1 to 6, Paul begins to use this last resort style of dialogue by first expressing his concern about their blatant disloyalty to God and to Christ and to his gospel. That's what he does. He, he kind of sets the scene here in these first six verses. In other words, he says, if you put up with false teachers, surely you need to listen to me. He asks them to bear with him and a little foolishness, his boasting, so that upon hearing his personal, apostolic, God-given authority, they might heed the truth and return in faith and repentance to the fold, to the family, to the family of God. And the question for us is this morning, you know, we want to just not look at this historic event and see, oh, wow, okay, that's happened. But we want to apply it to ourselves. And so the question for us this morning is, how loyal are we? Or perhaps we could ask, why should I be loyal to God and Christ and his gospel? So for our learning this morning, I want to highlight from this passage that we have read four reasons why genuine Christians should be loyal toward God, our Savior, and his truth in the gospel, okay? We're going to look at four reasons. I'm going to sort of turn this and put a positive spin on it. What Paul is doing in these first six, sixes, first six verses is very negative. This is what's your problem. This is what you have been deceived. This is where you're going. This is what you have done. I want to use that for our learning this morning to see not what we have done, but how Christians should respond to 
disloyalty, okay? The first thing is that Christians should be loyal to God because we belong to him, and we see this in verse 2. Or verse 2a, that should be 2a up there, sorry. It's not 1a. And as I was thinking about this, I thought about most mothers who have children, and my wife being the mother of five knows all about this. You know, most mothers will know the heartache and sense of loss and sadness. And even, can I say, use that word jealousy, when their child, you will resonate with this, excitedly begins their first day at school. They are happy. The kids are happy. They're delighted. They're jumping up and down. They're climbing up the walls. They're going to school. They're going to school. Is that how the mother exactly feels? I don't think so. You know, I've seen tears and turmoil of heart from one particular mother as she has said goodbye to five of her children on their first day at school. The reason for the sense of loss and this brief heartache is that mums know that from that day forward their child's loyalties will now have to be shared. So you mums who haven't got kids to go to school, you've got to experience this, but I'm just giving you a warning. This is, what it'll go, this is how it'll go down. You know that their loyalties and love and devotion will have to be shared. Their child's lo- your child's loyalty and dependence will, will in some sense become divided. Their school teachers and other kids will now invade their little minds with both good and the bad, I might say. And to some degree, they become their heroes, their mentors, their authority figures, where before it was only ever and always completely about mum. And so what usually happens, a healthy jealousy kicks in, right? A healthy jealousy kicks in, which results in brief pangs of hurt. And maybe even some to tears. They see their little Johnny or their little Lucy hop on the bus and go to school. Well, a similar turmoil of heart happened to the Apostle Paul as he considered the disloyal and divided allegiance of some of the saints at Corinth. But there was a big difference here because the difference was that these were adult professing believers and they had chosen all on their own volition to walk away from the true source of their spiritual roots and their mentor, their God-ordained apostle. They chose to do that. They just blatantly walked away from him and from the truth. They chose to listen and be duped by other teachers and be duped by their own fanciful ideas and opinions. They chose that rather than heed God's message through the apostle. They chose to abandon their true source of divine knowledge, which first, what did it do? It led them to salvation, right? And so from then on, after their choice to follow after these others, their loyalties became divided. happens among Christians. It happens amongst many churches. It happens to believers on a large scale in one form or another. Remember Paul had to rebuke the Galatian believers, another church, for this very same thing. And this is what he said. 
I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. And a little further on, he continues his rebuke and he calls them, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? So it happens to churches, it happens to other Christians. And you know what? It can happen here in New Community Church. And so a little like a saddened mother over her child's first day at school, Paul, the pastor, the true pastor, experiences the heartache and the sense of loss and sadness and, and even jealousy over this blatant lack of love and loyalty toward himself and most of all toward God who had saved them through the gospel. And so Paul responds to this disloyalty by saying these words, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Oh, wow. I thought jealousy was only sinful. No, no, there is such a thing as godly jealousy. This, is, this was not human jealousy kicking over here that we know so much about. No, no. You see, when Paul said this, when he said these words, this is what he was saying. Let me paraphrase this for you this, give, to give you a, a, a more a colloquial understanding. This is what he's saying. On God's behalf, I am expressing exactly how he feels about this situation. That's what he's saying. In other words, God's jealousy, God is jealous over any defection of his people when they make room in their lives where he alone should reign supreme. God is jealous about that. Choices and decisions that are against him's mind and against his will is defection. There's no other word for it. And you know what that does? It brings dishonor to his name. And he is jealous for his namesake. He is righteously jealous when his people choose alternative ways of worshipping him, of approaching him, of living, of relationships, other than what is decreed clearly in his word. You will know the Old Testament is full of how God was jealous for his redeemed people. Exodus 20 and verse 5 says this, this is what God says, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. That's what he said in regards to the people who had redeemed out of Egypt. He says in Deuteronomy 4, verse 2, he just, there the, the writer describes the Lord as a consuming fire, a jealous God. Nahum 1, 2 says, the Lord is jealous and an avenging God. So there is such a thing as godly jealousy and we see it expressed in God, from God. Remember Jesus on earth, the very man who was God, God incarnate? He was jealous. On one particular occasion he went into the house of prayer in Jerusalem and he was so perturbed at how his house of prayer had been made into a house of merchandise and where money was being made and, and wrong things were being done. And so he made a scourge and he whipped and he turned over tables and he hounded those profiteers out. And the disciples were with him, remembered how back in the Psalms it was said, my zeal for my house has consumed me. Jesus expressed his righteous jealousy. Psalm 69 tells us that. And so this is an aspect of God's nature and character that we do not often contemplate, is it? 
You don't think about this too much. Yet through here, through the apostle, as we read in our text today, the jealousy of God is expressed toward his people who were moving away from him by bowing down to their own ideas, their own opinions, and the teaching of false prophets and false teachers. They were bowing to them, and hence God was jealous. They were replacing God's holiness, his power, his awesomeness, and his authority with mere human hankerings and prideful philosophical teachings. That's what they were replacing God with. They were being disloyal to God of their salvation. They were bringing disrepute to his name. Now, folks, we need to ask, are we being disloyal? Are we provoking God's jealousy in any way? By substituting him with all sorts of other stuff in our lives? You see, I have experienced this, and many of you here have experienced this, when a foreigner, which I was once, becomes a citizen of Australia, there are certain things that you have to do and abide by. You are required to give your allegiance and loyalty to the country, right? You are required to give your loyalty and allegiance to the country's laws, to its values, and to its constitution. That's what you do at a citizenship ceremony. And you do this in order to enjoy the rights and the freedom that this country offers. In other words, this country is now your home and you belong to it and it belongs to you. You get that? That privilege requires loyalty and allegiance to it. And you step outside the boundaries and you'll have the law pouncing on your doorstep. My dear people, how much more as believers being citizens of heaven where the King of King and Lord of Lord reigns should our loyalty and allegiance to the eternal King be crystal clear in our lives? Amen. We belong to God and He is our God. And He reigns in heaven and He reigns forevermore. Our loyalty should be such that we go all out to please the king and never ever to bring dishonor and provoke his jealousy by our defection in any way, shape or form. He loves us. He owns us. He purchased us with his own blood. We are his beloved sons and daughters and it only grieves his heart to jealousy when he sees us choose anyone or anything that substitutes our loyalty and love away from him. Our God is a jealous God. How does your love and loyalty measure up toward your God? The second way is that Christians should be loyal to Christ because of who we are to him. Of all the areas in life that love and loyalty should be expressed, can I say an experience that is that exciting pre-marriage waiting period between the bride and the groom-to-be, right? And many will know of that. And so this is the analogy the Apostle Paul picks up here, but with a Jewish flavor. As in our traditional 
marriage that we have in this country, so also is in the Jewish marriage. And there are two main events that lead up to the marriage ceremony, or there's two events within that ceremony. First of all, you have the engagement, or as we have here, the betrothal period. And in the Jewish situation, it often lasted up to a year and even longer. Because sometimes the betrothal period was when, when girls were very young until the marriage ceremony took place. And then, of course, is the other main event is the wedding day when the bride and groom come together ceremonially and also physically. And so this is, the, this is the picture that Paul picks up and uses here. The moment a couple were betrothed or engaged, a covenant was in place that only death and divorce and unfaithfulness could annul. That was how it was. And that's how it is. And so during this period, the couple were considered as husband and wife. Did you know that? Hence, Joseph and Mary, when they were betrothed, they were considered as husband and wife, even though no physical union had taken place. The wedding day had not arrived yet. And so this betrothal period lasted until the wedding wedding ceremony where the covenant then was completed. And all through this betrothal period, for however long it was, up to the time of the ceremony, It was dad's responsibility. It was the father's responsibility to make sure his daughter is kept pure and remains faithful to her pledged husband. You got the picture? The father then could present his daughter, the bride, to her husband as a pure virgin. And so now Paul picks up this betrothal scene, this betrothal period and transfers this betrothal, this waiting period, to when the Corinthians, from when the Corinthians responded in faith to his gospel preaching. Because it was then that he betrothed them. The moment they were saved, when they put faith and trust in Christ, that was when they were betrothed to one husband, which is Christ. In other words, the day they got saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, that's when they got engaged. That's when the betrothal covenant began. This is when they pledged their love and loyalty to Jesus Christ. And Paul, Paul, being their spiritual father in the faith, 1 Corinthians 4.15 tells us that, he was determined that they remain faithful. Why? Why should he do that? Well, like any good father with a daughter and a bride-to-be, Paul longed to present his spiritual sons and daughters as pure virgins to Christ. The analogy is very simple and easy to follow through. In other words, this spiritual father, this man who had led them to the Lord, this man who had had that great privilege of bringing to them the true gospel whereby they were saved, he went all out now to keep them from bringing dishonor to the bridegroom, which is Christ. Wonderful thought, isn't it? Because those of us who are born again, those of us who are true Christians here this morning, we're still in that betrothal period. You may not have an engagement ring on, but you have that deposit, that araboni, which is the word for an engagement ring on, that one day we will meet Christ 
our bridegroom. And that day is coming, right? There will be a wedding ceremony for every true believer. When Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, comes to receive his blood-bought bride at the rapture of the church, we're told about that in John 14, verses 1 to 3, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The covenant of our allegiance and love and loyalty will then be complete. The earnest expectation that we're in now and the waiting that we are in now will be over. We will then be with ever, forever with the Lord. What a wonderful time. But Paul was really concerned for some of his spiritual children in Corinth. His fear was that some of them were being seduced and deceived, just like Eve was in the Garden of Eden by Satan. We see this in verse 3 of our text. He was really concerned. And I might say this should be the concern of any pastor, elder, mother, father, toward those whom God has entrusted to them for their spiritual care. You see, what Satan did in the garden with Eve is exactly what he continues to do today. This is what he does. He interprets truth as error and then advances that error as truth. Do you get that? He takes hold of truth and sees this is what it does mean, which is erroneous, and then he advances that erroneous teaching as being the truth. Eve wasn't a bad woman before this. She only wanted to do what was right. She wanted to please God. She wanted God's best. And what Satan came along and suggested was that she could be as God, that she could know the difference between right and wrong, etc., etc. It seemed good to her. And she was deceived. And instantly her heart came divided. And following along, Adam blatantly sinned. He wasn't deceived. That's why we're told that only Eve was deceived. Adam wasn't deceived. He knew what was right and what was wrong, what God had commanded, and he just blatantly disobeyed. You see, deception is Satan's ploy to rob God of undivided loyalty from his children. James 1.16 warns us, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. How we need to heed this warning, folks especially in this day and age where where so many of Satan's tools are bent on defecting our hearts to things like material goods and money and lust and pleasure and ease and laziness and selfishness. He's bent on getting to defect to those kind of things. He's so skilled at it. It says in verse 3, what does it say? He's crafty. See that? Craftiness. He's so skilled, he's crafty. And what he does, he plays with our minds. He plays with our minds. And he gets us to thinking that, yes, we do know best. We do know best. He gets us to thinking that for the sake of unity and for comfort uh, and for good all round, let the Bible doctrine, let doctrine of the Bible play second fiddle. And he gets us to thinking that God's standards and truth can be reinterpreted to mean whatever culture or our own circumstance demand them to mean. He gets us to think all those kinds of things. Satan's ploy is to mess with our minds, our thinking, to do what? What does he want us to do? He wants us to lead us astray. That's what the text says. Lead us astray. Astray from what? 
What does Satan want us to, to lead us astray from? This is what it says in the text in verse 3. He leads us astray from what? The simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. You see that? We have made everything so, com- so complicated, don't we? We go on and on and bring up all sorts of arguments and all sorts of philosophies and all sorts of things and we make the simple faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ so complicated. And Satan is having a heyday with our minds and leading us astray from the simplicity and purity and devotion to Christ. You know, can I say, Satan is literally hell-bent on using this strategy in order to deceive God's people so that our allegiance and our loyalty is weakened and divided. Believe us. My prayer is for you all, like that of Paul, that we as a church might be spiritual, loyal, and chaste virgins when we meet our bridegroom, because we are going to meet him one day, every true believer. Or as the Apostle John says in 1 John 2.28, abide in him so that when he appears, this is Jesus Christ, when he appears, we have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. May we be loyal to Jesus Christ in our actions, our words, our lifestyles, our thoughts. Because why? Because of this. We are a betrothed bride-to-be. Okay? And we're a betrothed bride that awaits the coming of the bridegroom and that great marriage ceremony. If you want to read more about that, you read Revelation chapter 19. Thirdly, Christians need to be loyal because of the gospel good news. And we see this in verse 4. Paul's concern here was that those who had been deceived were so easily accepting as truth, all kinds of nonsense that these false teachers coughed up. And it already expressed this fear in verse 2, and that fear was because of, of the tolerance that these people were having toward these false teachers and the disloyalty that it produced. His fear was there. And so even today, being tolerant, showing tolerance, is considered a key to successful relationship and for even defining what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false, right? You've got to be tolerant. Tolerance is a key word in our society, secular as it is, and also, sad to say, in many churches. But this is not the case when it comes to defining truth about God and what is right and what is wrong, and especially not the case when it comes to the way of salvation because God has said there's only one way of salvation. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No person, no man, no woman comes under the Father but by me. Now we cannot be tolerant to others who teach that. We cannot be tolerant to other teaching. It's false teaching. We cannot be inclusive and say, oh yeah, there's many ways to God, there's many ways up the top of the mountain. No, God has given us in grace the truth. Human ideas, opinions and of men must all come under the measure and authority of Scripture. And if it doesn't measure up, it's false theology. And here in Corinth, Paul was really concerned about 
this acceptance and tolerance of the erroneous teaching that was being taught. And this is what he says, that they, they bore it beautifully, this is the uh, NASB has, or the NIV will have, that they, they easily bore it. Same thing. In other words, bring it on. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, could be a way. They accepted it. They were tolerant. And so what he does, he continues with his foolishness, this boasting, this sarcasm, this irony. And he has this in mind when he delivers his rebuke in verse 4. And I need to put a contemporary spin on this so that you'll get really what verse 4 is all about. He says, If you are foolish enough to listen to me and be deceived by false teachers, surely will you will give me the time of day, being your spiritual father, and listen to my true teaching. This is, this is the angle he takes. And so what Paul does then is he gives brief three-point outline of the error that they were tolerating and accepting. What were they tolerating and accepting? Well, first of all, they preach another Jesus. That's what Paul says, another Jesus. This was not the true Jesus Christ that Paul preached. Sure, the Jesus that these false teachers preached and was being promoted. Yes, no doubt he was the promised Messiah. Of course, he was born of a virgin and of course he was crucified and he was risen again and may have even ascended. Yes, they kind of went along with all that. But the absolute sufficiency of faith alone in Jesus Christ alone for salvation was clearly missing. The Jesus that they preached was not the sole basis of salvation. He was not the all-sufficient Christ. You might say, well, how do you know that from this text? Just follow along in verse 4. We see that because Jesus produced a different spirit. See that? Produced a different spirit. Now, I hope your Bibles, your translations, because it's correct, it's not a Holy Spirit, it shouldn't have a capital S on it, have produced a different spirit, which is the spirit of man. A spirit of the age, a spirit of whatever. And can I suggest that genuine faith in Jesus Christ, who alone forgives sin, what does it produce? This is what it produced. First of all, it gives a person eternal life and then brings a spirit of peace. A spirit of freedom, a spirit of power, a spirit of love and self-discipline, right? We read that in 2 Corinthians 3.17, 3, Romans um, chapter 14, verse 17, 2 Timothy 1.7. That's the kind of spirit. We have the spirit of forgiveness. We're no longer condemned. We are one with Christ. Why? Because Christ alone saves. But you see, if believers revert to a legalistic system where our sole loyalty and dependence on Christ is divided or made to cooperate with personal merit or some kind of work for salvation, you know what happens to that kind of person? You know what happens to a person who's, who, who says they believe in Jesus Christ and then adds to that gospel more than faith and more than trust, well, also I must do this and I must do this and I must do this and then I'll be saved. You know what happens to that person? They become consumed with a spirit of fear and slavery. In other words, 
I can only be saved and have a promised home in heaven if I do this and do this. Oh yes, I must believe in Jesus. Or I must take communion, or I must do this, or I must whatever. We're not saved by works, folks. And this is what the false teachers produced. It was a different spirit. And when we go down, when we logically follow this three points through, we will see that what this else does produce, it produces a different gospel. This is a logical outcome. The preaching of another Jesus can only produce a different spirit. It's a, it is a different gospel. This was not the true gospel that God had given the Apostle Paul to deliver to his hearers. No way. This wasn't the gospel that they, were, that they listened to and they heard with their ears, ears and, and by faith they were saved eternally and secure. No. It was false. It was a false gospel they were listening to. Oh yes, it was near the truth and yet so far from it. People were not and still cannot have their sins forgiven and receive eternal life through believing that kind of a gospel where it's faith plus works or faith plus something else. It was and still is a tool of Satan that deceives people and fools them into a lost eternity. That's terrible, isn't it? People by the millions are going to a lost eternity by taking on board a false gospel like this. Yet amazing as it was, some of the Corinthians, just think about this. Here were the Corinthians who were privileged to sit under the teaching of the great and mighty Apostle Paul himself. And yet they fell for it. Their loyalty to Christ alone has been diminished. My dear people, let's get a little more up close and personal on this, okay? You know, when you hear that knock on the door and you open the door and you see people with suits and maybe a couple of kids, you straight away, ah, JWs. I know where they're at. They preach another gospel. They preach another Jesus. They preach a false gospel. We've got it down, right? They don't believe in the deity of Christ and and everything. and, um, And we know what it's all about. Allow me to come a little closer still. Is it a biblical Jesus, a biblical gospel that promises us only health, wealth, and prosperity? Is it a biblical Jesus who promises eternal life without one single mention of hell and the realities of it? Is it a biblical Jesus who prom- who that demands the saving work of Jesus Christ be supplemented with works and religious ceremonies for salvation? The answer is no. I see Kevin nodding his head in agreement with me. The answer is no. And you know, folks, we need to be warned on this. We need to be warned that there are more than ever numerous unbiblical gospels being dangled before our hearts and eyes and minds like never before today. And if the Corinthians under the teaching of the apostle, if they could be deceived, if some of them could be deceived and defect their love and loyalty to Jesus, to a Jesus that who did not really exist, if they could do that, how much more we need to be on guard, amen? And so what is our safeguard? Let me tell you, our only safeguard, our only single safeguard is to humbly 
return again and again and again as we have done this morning to the apostolic gospel as we have in the word of God. Fourthly and lastly, Christians need to be loyal because of divine knowledge given to us. Well, you might not think that you've got divine knowledge, but those who are truly born again have had divine knowledge imparted to them. And so what Paul does is he closes a section with more last resort boasting in order to appeal to these defectors in Corinth. And I love the irony here that Paul uh, heads it up. Um, you know, he doesn't treat these false teachers as equals. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even go into the details of what they were teaching. He doesn't give them the time of day for that. But what he does, he sarcastically claims that he's not any way inferior to these super apostles. <laughs> In other words, he is saying, just because I may not have the skill of public speaking, because this has been brought up before, right? They accused him. How can he call himself apostle and he hasn't even been to oratory school? How can he be called an apostle of God when he didn't even communicate very well? It may be that he stuttered or it may be that he spat like I do. I don't know. Um, he may have done something, but they pointed the finger at his communication skills and said, how can he be apostle of God? Paul just said, I may not have the skill of public speaking and trained in rhetoric like those super apostles among you, yet I have something that they do not. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I have something that they do not. Paul knew that fluency and rhetoric and oratory skill was very attractive, and it is attractive. I love to hear a, a, a pe people that speak well and clearly. It's, it's very attractive. Can't stand politicians that get up and come, uh, uh, like I do. I just love to hear clear oratory. And Paul knew that this was very attractive. But Paul also knew that it wasn't the all in all. He was more interested in truth than, te than technique. He says, I'm not lacking in knowledge, knowledge from God that is. Knowledge that God has personally imparted, imparted to me. No, I'm not lacking in that. In other words, they may have oratory skills, but you look what I've got. Just take a good look and listen to what I have. And so what was he saying this for? Why has God given me this divine knowledge, this knowledge? You see, the super apostles, by the way, it's a bit of a spin-off from them because the super apostles of their day, they were kind of a sect at this time and they claimed to have secret knowledge. A knowledge that had been given to them that they could keep to themselves. You had, you're a bit like some of our secret societies today that you're not allowed to enter before you, until you sort of go through all these different stages. And so you're sort of making a bit of fun at this and says, I have knowledge, even though the apostles, super apostles, prided themselves in their secret knowledge. But why did he say this? You see, as we know from 1 Corinthians 4.1, the Apostle Paul was given knowledge so that he might be a steward of the mysteries of God, right? That's what it says. And what does a steward do? Hold it to himself and puff himself up with pride because he knows more than anything else? No, no, no. 
You see, this was knowledge that was given to him, gospel knowledge given to him by the Spirit of God, and he did not keep it secret. If you want a description of what this knowledge is all about, you need to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16, and you'll get a very clear description of what that's all about. You see, what Paul did with this knowledge that was given him direct by God, by the Spirit of God, was that he just fenced with it like a good steward would and should, like we all should. He preached it. He taught it to the select few? No, to whosoever whether it be paupers or whether it be kings, whether it be religious or whether it be pagans. Paul preached it. He spat it out. He preached it in whatever shape or form. On human standards, his communication skills may have been only average, but what matters most is that he declared faithfully and fully the truth that God had given him. And so this begs the challenge to us all. If the Corinthians, after being founded on solemn doctrine uh, given them by the Paul, and yet they fell prey, some of them, to the lack of love and loyalty to God and Christ and the truth that was given, if they fell prey to that and, and, and were sucked in and became divided in their love and loyalty, how much more we need to be on guard. And can I say, to heed the words of the Apostle Paul when he spoke to young Timothy. You know what he said to Timothy on one occasion? He said in 1 Timothy chapter 6.20, he said this, and I'm going to close with this as a challenge to you all. Guard what has been entrusted to your care. Now, even if I stopped right there, that would be good. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. Wow. Plenty of knowledgeable people out there. But let us never go past the knowledge of the Word of God. And we need to know this. Because if we don't know the knowledge that's given to us by God in the Scripture, we will be deceived and sucked in by every other false teacher, false teaching out there. May we all as God's children and His family be marked with love, loyalty, and allegiance toward God and Christ and his word. Amen. Let me close with this benediction. Maybe we can stand for this and I'll let you uh, all go. It's a benediction from 1 Thessalonians 5 and 23. Just bow your heads as I read this benediction. Now may the God of peace sanctify you entirely and may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the people of God said, Amen. Thank you.